HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from around 12 to around 1 o'clock. Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, a little bit late to the studio today, a victim, I think, of the New York City subway system. But call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And uh, don't worry, Nastasha should be here shortly. Um, Have some questions uh, already in, so let me just uh, take care of some of those. Um, the other John Stewart writes in, Dave, Nastasha, et al., regarding Steve Jenkins from Fairway, and who does he sound like? Those of you might remember that last uh, week uh, the program was brought to you by Fairway. Who's the program brought to, to – who's doing it today? It's uh, S. Wallace Edwards and Son. Oh, yeah. S. Wallace Edwards, home of one of my favorite American country hams. Now, uh, you know, Sam Edwards, who is, I don't know, like billionth generation uh, ham-curing guy, he uh, – you know, he he and I have this one disagreement, and every time I mention him on the air, and every time I see him in person, I say this: he markets his uh, one of his excellent, um, you know, uh, at least one year old age kind of you know not, not semi ambient cured uh, hams, meaning that uh, they're refrigerated um, during the curing, the actual curing process, so that they don't spoil, but then are allowed to age ambiently, you know, for upwards of a month. Uh, which I think are you know delicious, uh, and, and he makes them actually with Heritage uh, Foods. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Heritage breed pork, and they're delicious. But he markets those as Surrianos, Surrey being the county in Virginia where they are. You know, uh, you know, kind of classic. You know, one of the classic places for American country hams. By the way, all American country hams, almost all American country hams, are fundamentally derived from the culture of. Uh, Tidewater, Virginia, because uh, it started there, and then you know, remember, remember like everything, or everything from there over, like through Kentucky was v- Virginia back in the day, and most of these, you know, a lot of these families have curing roots that d- date back to um, 
at or prior to the uh, American Revolution. So, I mean, it's, there's a long history of it there. I don't know where that got started with. So, anyway, so he's calling it Suriano as like Serrano and, uh, and Surrey because, you know, well over a decade ago, gosh, it's got to be well over a decade ago, you know, uh, you know, he decided that uh, the kind of hams that he was producing in America uh, were not receiving their just due and thought they were most like uh, some of the ham- mountain hams. Serrano just means mountain ham, you know, uh, in uh, in Spain, and so kind of you know was kind of joining the idea of this American ham with kind of this quality of mountain ham that he had had in Spain, and uh, you know. My feeling has always been uh, American ham is American ham, seller is American ham, and Sam Edwards, uh, you know, as much as I love and respect uh, his products, and he, you know, is a good guy, just call it American. What do you think? Anyone? Anyone? No, no one cares. Only me. Uh, but anyways, that wasn't what we were talking about. We were talking about what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, oh, Steve Jenkins last week from Fairway, who was our sponsor last week, and uh, we'd had a bit a little discussion. Uh, about like what voiceover actor uh, he sounded like, and so the other John Stewart writes in uh, regarding Steve Jenkins from Fairway, and who does he sound like? To me, he sounds like Alec Baldwin, who does lots of voiceover work, which is weird because you mentioned Alec Baldwin only minutes later, uh, and it didn't make and I di- and didn't make the connection. So perhaps you disagree. I threw audio of the two into this link, pretty similar, but perhaps not who Dave was thinking of. And then uh, there's a link which maybe we can play later. With playing, uh, you know, Steve Jenkins side by side with Alec Baldwin, or maybe we can just call that up somehow. And you know what, uh, John, you're dead on, man. Those—that's exactly what it is. It's Alec Baldwin, but it's kind of one of those things. Voiceovers freak me out a little bit. Like, uh, you know, I was watching this stuff, and uh, you know, com- commercials come on because I have a TV now, and the kids watch it. I watch it. Come on, come on please. Uh, but the um, commercials come on. I'm like, oh my god, is that Magnum PI? Is Tom Selleck doing voiceover work? I mean, it's not like it's there's, you know. It, and Morgan Freeman, by the way, I don't know if any of you guys watch the Olympics. Morgan Freeman, literally, like, I think he was, like, sitting around on call waiting for people to win medals because he would congratulate them on the medal that they won, like, 10 seconds after. Or did he record every permutation of every American winning every medal? He's like, congratulations on your bronze. You know, just, anyway, whatever. Voiceovers. Amazing. So, uh, John, you're totally right. Alec Baldwin is uh, the call. Alec Baldwin, of course whose voice is amazing. Uh, But uh, John also has a question. I've been bagging all of my low-temp food using your Ziploc method for years. The Food Saver uh, vacuum never looked like it had much advantage over the Ziploc technique and doesn't really seem to pull a hard vacuum. Therefore, it never seemed useful for bagging where you want to uh, use a vacuum to pull your marinade into a product, for example. But I just ran across the Thrifty Vac, uh, which you can see on uh, the YouTube. It's a Thrifty Vac, I think one word, and Vac is V-A-C. Thrifty is spelled thrifty as in someone who is thrifty. Uh, and it's cheap. It's on the Amazon.com. Uh, and you can look. It's like 22 bucks. Uh, fundamentally, uh, well, I'll finish the question. And it looks like this might be able to pull a harder vacuum uh, than uh, he's saying, I guess, presumably than a food saver. Do you think this looks useful as a uh, poor person's vacuum chamber? Or is it not likely to pull a hard enough vacuum to be any better than the Ziploc method? Thanks to the other John Stewart. Yeah, okay. So I took a look at this uh, device. And for those of you out there uh, who you know, haven't seen it or, you know, aren't on the internets right now, although how are you listening to us if you're not on the internets? Um, the, what it is, is, is it's a one-way valve and a little kind of like a, like a, a boxy piece of plastic and a one-way valve that you put onto uh, a large bag, you know, Ziploc or other, uh, and it punctures the bag and then it comes with a little, little, uh, you know, 
like a sucking device, almost like a larger version of a vacuum van uh, pulling thing, and you stick a, a Ziploc inside of the other bag that's f- almost sealed. So it's the same as the as the the technique, the, the water technique, by the way, which is what I use at home because I don't have a vacuum machine at home. Is I seal almost entirely seal a vacuum uh, Ziploc bag. Ziploc. By the way, when you buy a Ziploc bag, first of all, like. Glad bags work, I'll admit. But, like, I always buy brand-name bags because off-brands suck. Never get the ones that have two layers of plastic. Get the single layer. Get also the freezer uh, ones because they're much better gas barriers than the regular ones. And never get the ones with the slidey doodles. I do not trust the sealing capability of the sliding doodles. Get the ones that have the old-school just zipper, you know, the, just the, not a zipper, but, like, just, you know, the, the seal without the slide doodle, right? So you seal it almost all the way up. Uh, and then you just leave the very corner unsealed. You put your finger in it, lift it by that corner. It now forms a diamond, and you immerse it under the water. As you immerse underwater slowly, you kind of you know force the air out from around it, and, and presumably your product is surrounded by some form of liquid on the inside of the bag, oil, sauce, whatever. And uh, and the air, once excluded, never comes back in because the water, the pressure of the water, excludes it. And then at, right as the tip of the bag goes underneath. You seal it with your with your uh, you pinch it sealed and it's done. And this is the way I do almost everything. It makes a fantastic seal. It doesn't create a vacuum, but it does exclude air, which is ninety nine percent of what we want to do when we're doing low temperature cooking, unless you're doing a vacuum effect. Okay. So what this thing does is it allows you to put a Ziploc inside of uh, another bag with a one-way valve, uh, but in other, in other ways, it's similar. You leave a little corner of the Ziploc un, unpressed, you pull the vacuum, you push the uh, seal shut while it's inside of another bag, and then you pull it out and it's sealed. Uh, it's not really – that kind of a vacuum pump that they're using, that piston vacuum pump, is never going to pull a, a, a decent um, vacuum. Anyway, so we have a caller. I'm going to get the caller and then I come back and talk more about uh, the, 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 this vacuum machine and, and kind of what I think it's good for and what, what it doesn't do. Anyway, caller, you're on the air. Hello, this is Martin from Vienna calling. Oh, hey, how you doing? Um, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Doing well. I love Vienna. I've only been to your town for a couple of days, but it seemed very nice when I was there. Uh, yeah, it is. Have you been to a Würstelstand? Uh, did you did uh, the famous cheese sausage? No, no. The only so I was there literally. I was there for uh, EC, the company. I was doing work with them with uh, Rapid Infusion, and uh, I was only yeah. there for uh, I was only there for like literally like a day and a half, not even two full days. The only thing I got to do, we went to, we had a, uh, we had a, you know, schnitzel at the, what, what's the name of the place that's, it's a couple blocks from the, it's a couple blocks from the opera house. It's like famous for its uh, schnitzel. What the heck's the name of it? Like Opfer something. But there is the Siegelmüller, uh, where you get the huge ones. Yeah, I don't think it was that. What's or uh, the other one is the Plachuta. Hmm. I have to remember, but it was good, you know, with the lemon wedge and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed the Viennese potato salad. Yeah. I did get to visit the market, that long outdoor market that you guys have. What's that called? This yeah, the Nashmark. Yeah, Nashmark. That was really cool. And, like, there's a lot of people there selling uh, – because I only wanted Austrian products because why would I buy a different product when I'm in Austria, right? So I went through there searching yeah. various different kinds of uh, – uh, cured meats and uh, cheeses and, and different products and thought it was uh, it was really nice. But, no, I did not get to have the cheese sausage next time. Well, no, I did get to have – no, I didn't. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, we had a sausage. No, I did because when I showed up at lunch for the first day, I showed up and, like, had to go right to work from the airplane. And they were like, what do you want for lunch? I was like, Wurst. And so they brought a bunch of – I think one of them was cheese. It was good, but I can't recall the name because they just put it in front of me. They didn't tell me what I was eating. 
but there was one with cheese in it. What's the name yeah, of it? What's okay. the name of it? Cheese Kreiner. Oh yeah, K- yes. Cheese Kreiner. Yeah, yeah. Was Kreiner. Yeah. What does Kreiner mean? Well, uh, Kreiner. Uh, it means it means a sausage coming from Krein, which is uh, in Slovenia called Kranska Gora. So that's where where the the original sausage is coming from, and then the Austrian added the cheese to it and uh, made it a Käse Kreiner, so cheese Kreiner, cheese sausage. Well, my, if my memory serves me, that was uh, it was a good call adding the adding the Käse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what's your yeah, question? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. But I have a I have a question about uh, uh, hydrocolors, about gelatin actually, uh, because I'm trying to do a kind of a. Uh, vodka panna cotta, right? And uh, I have problems to to get it like stiff freely. So and I know, of course, that that uh, adding alcohol to gelatin uh, decreases the the stability of the gel you have in the end. But uh, I just when I when I when I get it lower uh, and the the gelatin sets really nicely, uh, you cannot taste the vodka anymore so and uh, my one uh, my question is about how uh, high can i get that uh, still if you have like a ratio that uh, i can still have a, a set gelatin with uh, with vodka well most um most sources that you read usually for uh, and and I, it's not really based in any sort of reality right they they put they put the upper it's based on kind of rules of thumb they base the upper limit for most um, alcohol sensitive hydrocolloids and most of them are because remember it's not water right and the hydrocolloids require water to do their work yeah. um, they usually place the upper limit for normal function somewhere in the range of 20% Somewhere in that range. Uh-huh. So, okay. in general, when you're using, so, and, and that would be like the pure pure alcohol uh, range, or, or or the vodka, like twenty percent uh, pure, pure. But but that's pure, but that okay. that's like the mm-hmm. upper limit. But like the more alcohol that you add to any system, right? The more uh, it depends on the hydrocolloid too. The more hydrocolloid that you're you're going to have to add to get the the same um, result. So, like, what, what, give, give me your mm-hmm. give me your recipe. How much uh, how much vodka was in there, as a percentage of the total? Uh, there was about like uh, I I took uh, two two parts cream and one point, uh, part uh, vodka. So so one third was vodka, which would be like one sixth, a bit less, so almost something like twenty percent uh, alcohol, I guess, in the end. So that should be fine. It should maybe be fine. I just have to raise the well, remember the gelatin. Cream isn't all water either, right? So you got you got cream, which yep. is not all water. Although it's not, it's the it shouldn't affect it the same way. But um, what and and what percentage more than the normal gelatin did you use? Uh, I I just like uh, I use the, the the kind of sheets that I would normally use, like uh, uh, I don't know, six sheets on 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 half a liter. Yeah, uh-huh. so I mean, I would just—I mean, if you, you haven't tried up like, and and it was too—it was too soft, right? Or did it not set at all? Yeah, did, was it? Was yeah, it, did, it, it, it was too soft because my 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 idea is that in the end I I put a, a liquid shell of uh, of coffee in it, so basically it's a reconstruction of a of a white Russian, uh, and and uh, whenever I try to get uh, the the liquid shell in it, uh, eventually it would break uh, because it's just not brittle enough. Uh, right. So that 
or oh. not 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 stiff enough. Right. A couple of things you can do. You can up the gelatin concentration, right? I mean, that's the first obvious thing to up the gelatin concentration. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by like, I wouldn't, you know, don't do anything drastic, like double it, because you don't have that much alcohol in it. So, I would up it. Uh-huh. I would up it like. Um, I would up it like maybe 25% or something like this and see whether or not that adds enough. Were you close to getting it? Was it close to the right texture or not? Nah, it, it, I mean, it's not bad. It is, it is stiff. It is, it is like a, a set gel, but it's, it's just, it's, it's not easy to handle in, in like when I try to put in the, the liquid gel itself. Right. So uh, I just, it, it would eventually, it would, I, I have like a failure of almost 50%. Of pieces when I cut in in cubes that would fall apart. Right. So and that uh, just it's just not stiff enough. Maybe maybe just to raise uh, the the gelatin would would help. Yeah, y- y- and then I, gelatin's good that way in that erasing it doesn't. So like a lot of other hydrocolloids, when you raise their percentages. Uh, you get a lot of nasty kind of textural effects and you get a lot of nasty kind of taste effects when you up them uh, to the point where you get their like the functionality right, whereas gelatin is pretty friendly that way. I mean if it – I mean once you start getting very high percentages on uh, any hydrocolloid, you get a lot of flavor masking because you know a lot of the water, which is delivering the – like you know, some of the water you – know, the water-based – section of the flavor component is locked up in uh, in a hydrocolloid ma- matrix, and so you tend to get very poor flavor release. And the reason why gelatin is so good and why it's used in these is not just because its texture is awesome, but because it tends to mount, melt at uh, mouth temperature and um, mm. you know and, th- and thereby you know re- release and so almost get like a hun- you know hundred percent flavor release. The only other ones that have kind of such excellent flavor release are ones that are used in kind of very in very low um, quantities like gelan, right? But if you were going to switch to a different yeah. gelling medium for this, like gelan, the problem you're going to run into is you have to um, you have to ensure that um, you, you're going to have to. Uh, you're going to have to heat it to a high temperature and then get your alcohol in before it gets down at set temperature, right? Because the gel is like a snap set. But the other problem is, is that at really high temperatures that you need to hydrate things like gel in, you can't get alcohol that high. Now, you can get around it. I've made alcohol yeah. fluid gels all the time with both agar and with – and you know, an agar might be another thing too because you can make agar – you can make agar um, a lot softer if you put uh, locust bean gum in it or some, some a modifier okay. like yeah. that, and you can you can get uh, you know or a kappa carrageenan LBG is the classic one that people use to do gelatin analogs, and you might be able to harden that one up more and have you know uh, and it, you know you'll definitely know faster because it sets a lot faster than gelatin does, and I've done plenty of agar gels at. 20% alcohol, plenty, because uh, I used to do, okay. you know, yeah. as for, for demos, I used to do, um, I used to do like fluid, like alcoholic fluid gels, you know, all, all the time that were, you know, right around 20%. So I know that, I know that that system works well, but I think the gelatin will probably work well for you if you just up the percentage slightly and, and well, slightly like 20, 20, try 20% and see whether or not you get, because you, what you really want is you want it to be just at the failure point, right? You want it to hold itself. You want to be able to handle it, move it around and plate it, but you don't really want any yeah. more than that, right? And then that's what gelatin's so good at It's right. is its seeming delicacy. Uh, when it's you know you know there, but the, you know, but then you you run into the other issues if it's breaking, and, and then if your kitchen's hot or whatnot. I don't know how well a control you have over the temperature in the kitchen, but you know when gelatin gets close 
uh, to being too soft and then it gets warm, it's like, you know, you're done. You're, you're done. You know, it's, you're never going to be able to handle the product. But I think you should be able to do it by, yeah. just by increasing at those levels. If you were saying that you were going to do straight vodka, I'm saying, well, that's, you know, problematic. But, you know, I've done plenty of, uh, you know, up to 15% alcohol with gelatin just by upping the gelatin. Even ones that have to withstand fairly, uh, you know, rigorous, you know, conditions like uh, I've done carbonated alcohol, uh, gel- regular gelatin gels, up at those percentages, uh, at least fourteen because I've done you know pretty high high uh, alcohol wines that way. Uh, just but but by jacking the gelatin somewhat. Yeah. Uh, by the way, when, when I when I would like put the cream, the uh, with gelatin and 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 vodka and everything like still warm into a ISI uh, and then spray it like to make like, whipped cream, would the gelatin hold the shape or or would it? Yeah. Uh, well, so, so I mean, gelatin. By the way, also like with cream, if you get well, like anything over about twenty percent, the cream's going to start being in danger of breaking. Like that's kind of like the magic place of cream, uh, cream liquors yeah. without any sort of added protecting uh, things. And you could protect the cream, obviously, uh, you know, with various agents to stop it from breaking. But uh, including gelatin, that's what the chimique thing is made out of. But anyway, uh, gel- yeah, gelatin can be used as the foaming agent in ISI with that. However. Like if you want it to hold, if you want to do like a, if you want to make this recipe in an ISI and have it hold indefinitely, really dense, cre- like dense, dense, dense texture. Um, what percentage cream is it to the to the fluid gel? I mean to the gel. Is it like you say uh, a third? The uh, full. Uh, what percentage cream? Is it uh, a third? The, you said to the vodka. You mean or? Yeah, no. It's like it's like three parts, three parts, uh, two parts vodka mix, one part cream. Yeah. Yeah. No, two parts cream and one part vodka. Oh yeah. Okay. No problem. So what I would do is I would lower. Yeah. I would lower the, the. This should be fine. Like you, you're down. You're down more like you know fifteen percent or something like this. You should be okay just by upping the tip. But try this, right? Yeah. Take your take the the, uh-huh. the vodka. Do uh, make a. I think it should work at around one 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 percent. Take. Let, I'll just give you some random numbers to try. Take a uh, five hundred mils of water. Uh, yeah, do 500 mils of water and then um, uh, 10, 10 grams of – Don't you don't have to make the full recipe. I'm just giving you numbers that are easy to remember. 500 grams of water, 10, yeah, uh, 10 yeah. grams of agar, uh, cold obviously. Hydrate the, the, the agar, you know, whisk it in cold, bring it up to heat, simmer it for two minutes, temper in 500 mils of uh, vodka, right? Uh, let it set into a uh, 1% uh, gel. It should be fairly firm, even at that even at that 20%. If it's not, you can uh, try it at a slightly higher agar percentage, right? Now blend it in a blender, so uh-huh. now you have a vodka fluid gel. Now it's only 50% vodka, right? But instead of doing two cream to one, lean, make it a little leaner and do one-to-one cream with that vodka stuff in an ISI. And as long as the fluid gel worked, which I'd have to test it to make sure that exactly at 20 that the agar works, that is going to be dense. Dense, dense, dense. So a lot of times when I'm trying to do very dense ISI foams, I do fluid gel reinforced uh, cream bases, and they work. They work 
really, really well. And in fact, you can do things that would normally curdle cream, like you can do lemon juice, and eventually it'll curdle. But because a lot yeah. of the lemon juice is locked up inside of a fluid gel, it doesn't break the, the cream right away, and the stuff that's foamed out lasts like a long, long, long time. But the one thing I will say is that when you're putting a fluid gel into an ISI, um, you, you remember it's a fluid gel. So when you when you point the ISI down, it doesn't naturally run down to the bottom of the ISI and dispense. You have every time you dispense it, you have to put your finger over the uh, over the dispensing. Um, uh, tip and and flick the canister down so that you're sure that you have all the fluid gel packed against the head so that when you dispense it it's actually there but it's a fantastic way to do uh reinforced creams and i like i do reinforced creams with like very high acid fruits all the time that way and i'm pretty sure it would work with an alcohol fluid gel as well okay thank you very much no problem uh, I am, by the by way, way I, I won i won uh isi uh um siphon by mentioning you, really, uh, because they had they had like this this uh, thing before Christmas. They would give out like free ISI uh, uh, siphons. Just you have to write them why you want to use it. And I mentioned uh, because I like the Dave Arnold's uh, quick infusion trick, and I would like to use it. And that's how I won my ISI. Oh, beautiful! Item. I just had another uh, idea. By the way, you might be able to hydrate the yep. agar. In uh, in like milk or cream, uh, and then uh, put the vodka into it and dope it. In that way, you wouldn't have to have all that water. But you'd have to play around with it to make sure it would work. But I think that might also be a solution that'll right. stop uh-huh. you from having to uh, add the extra water. But give it a shot. Try it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Have fun with the whipper. Thank you. I will. All right. Bye bye. Uh, okay, now back to Stas. Stas is like, break. oh yeah, we would, well, we'll come back with cooking issues and Nastasia Lopez. you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Wow. 
We did. We did. Jack. Jack's here, and Nastasha's here. It's like it's like crazy. The show can start now. Oh man, you guys, <laughs> you, you freaking guys. Although uh, you missed, uh, I went on a thing about the whole Suriano thing and, and how I feel about it. But now I can talk about the fact that I'm guessing, and I've never had this conversation, so I'm just guessing. Nastasha, do you hate the harmonica? No, I don't. Really? Mm-mm. I would think you hate it because Mm-mm. you hate things that tell stories, and it's like an inherently storytelling kind of an instrument. It like you know, kind of. That's true. It speaks from the soul. You're like, yeah, now I hate it. No, I don't hate it though. Yeah, yeah. So how are you doing, Stas? Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jack. Doing well. Yeah. So Jack, you had a question you were going to ask us, right? Yeah, we want we wanted to know your kind of thoughts on some of these new apps coming out that are catered towards um, restaurant eaters, like. For instance, there's one called No Wait, right? And you 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 can you can get on a restaurant waiting line at home with the app. I lo- well, I mean, I'd love I love that. Yeah. Except for you know my 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 the problem I, I don't know how it works because I've never used it as a as a user. I would like that. Imagine if you could just not. Admit. So I live like two blocks from uh, or three blocks from uh, Mission Chinese, right? Uh, which is Danny Bowen's restaurant, and uh, you know they don't take the the reservations. Uh, and the wait's like a billion years, but I, you know it would be no problem for me to just sit at home, you know, uh, you know, my, the wife and I drinking ourselves silly, and then waiting for you know them to say you've got ten minutes to, to hightail it over here, and I could hightail it over there, and you know, so that'd be a fantastic boon to someone like like me. I don't know how they operate it as a you know as an operator. You know, I know at the bar that a lot of times when people are on a list, they don't necessarily come back. You know, and so it's um. Do they have some mechanism to ensure that you're going to come back? We're interviewing them later today, so we'll find out. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it's the kind of thing that obviously is a boon to uh, the to the consumer. Uh, the question is, how hard is it going to hose? Um, how hard is it going to hose the restaurants that use it? Or do they have some anti-hosing mechanism in the application? I think all apps need an anti-hosing mechanism. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, so I mean, just to let you know. You know, we we have a lot of situations at the bar where you know we we people come in. We're like, okay, we're full because we you know we only have seats for like thirty two or whatever, uh, and uh, we say, okay, uh, you know, party of you know five or whatever it is. You know, we'll, we'll text you when um, it's free. Then we text them. We put a reserve sign on the seat. Now we have five seats empty, and it's not it's not just that there's five seats empty that we're not turning money o- around on. Although that does hurt me deeply. The uh, the real problem is is then people come in and they see the empty seats and they get pissed off that they can't get seated. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it's tricky. It's a kind of a fine dance uh, on how to do it. Bigger places it's easier to deal with because they have more turnover. But I wonder how it works. Some smaller places, like when you only have like thirty seats, you know, it's like it's 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 hard to ride that line properly. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. But uh, I'm interested to hear what they say. I'm interested to hear what the anti-hosing uh, mechanism is. Uh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you what do you got going today, Stas? Anything good? No, absolutely not. No, no, nope. absolutely not. Nope, nothing. You know what came no. in yesterday? <laughs> what do you mean? We got the Sears all T-shirts in yesterday. Yes, that's great. They look. Although Stas couldn't uh, didn't get a chance to see them, she had to go run an errand before they showed up. It, like the extra large is extra large. I'm glad. Because I'm nervous. We have most of our t-shirt buyers are extra larges. You could you could sail a tugboat into the shirt that I picked up. Good. Do we have XXLs or are they just XLs? No, just XLs. Man, Dax. You know, Dax, so Booker and Dax named after my kids. Booker and Dax. Dax, the small one who only wears uh, luchador masks. Although he forgot it this morning on the on walking the dog. I think because I kicked him out of bed because my wife was gone. So they, both kids had to come out with me to walk the dog this morning. And. Uh, Forgot his luchador mask for the first. It's the first time I've seen him outside of the house without a luchador mask on in 
months. Like, months. Weird, huh? Mm-hmm. I wonder whether maybe he's giving up the luchador phase. I hope not because I haven't, uh, you know, he hasn't had his mask yet, his custom mask. How did we get into this? What were we talking about? Shirts. Oh, shirts. Uh, so he was like, I want a Sears All shirt. I was like, Dax, I guarantee you we didn't order any kid sizes. Am I right? There's only smalls. I mean, <clears throat> the price would have been a lot higher if we had kid sizes. So just thinking about the company. <laughs> what? You see, Stas always tries to make it seem like I'm <laughs> being an I ogre for no reason. Like, First of all, oh, people, kids. people, people, I was never once consulted on this. And I would have said, you know, yeah, no, we're not going to order kid sizes because it's fundamentally it's not something we want small. kids to play with. Small, small is not – like Dax is like – he's nine. He's yeah, not, like, he's not like a teenager. Bed, right? Booker could wear a small. Yeah. No, no. Dax wants to wear it around. Mm. Dax wants to wear it like on the street. The the are you now you're saying that the ones we bought are going to shrink? No, like there's a way to shrink shirts on purpose, right? And, I don't know. I don't do that kind of thing. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't try to buy normal shirts and then shrink them down to club wear because I don't go to clubs. Um, okay. No, no offense. No problem with clubs. So back to John Stewart's – the other John Stewart's question. Um, so uh, for those of you that don't remember because it seemed like it was a long time ago, uh, the, the, the issue is, is will this new thing, this thrifty vac uh, work um, – to pull a real vacuum on something as opposed to just using a Ziploc. My feeling is, is, it's, is that it's not going to suck any more uh, hardcore of a vacuum than a, a vacuum van thing can suck and that it's not – it's probably useful if you want to – without having a big water bucket around to put things in a Ziploc. But I don't think it's going to achieve much more than uh, you can do just water dunking in a Ziploc. Um, so there you have it. But it's cheap and so if you want to do a lot of dry bagging work of stuff in Ziploc bags, you know, maybe it would be useful. But most of the people uh, – I looked on Amazon. It's got a lot of very positive reviews. Uh, but uh, if you actually burrow into the reviews on Amazon, almost everyone who was familiar with the uh, the water dunk method of Ziplocking was like, I don't really understand the advantages over a water dunk method on Ziplocking. So I don't think it's going to – it's not going to be there. It's not going to be you know an alternative for kind of vacuum infusion, I don't think. And by the way, the uh, you know a couple of the, the one of the people who did a review of it on YouTube that you sent us a link to said that um, you know that it kind of turns it into a chamber vacuum machine, and it does not turn it into a chamber vacuum machine because the minute you displace the air out of the bag, air from the outside pushes on top of the bag. In fact, that's kind of the mo. It's using the bag to push on the bag, uh, and that that's how it's working. Chamber vacuum machine works entirely differently in that it just removes the air, and there's no physical physical uh, compression on the item uh, until the air is allowed back in, right? And so that's kind of like that is the that, – that is how a chamber works. This works much more in the fashion that a food saver works except for instead of using a food saver bag, they enclose this thing in an outside bag. Now, what I do think it would be really good at probably is if you wanted to make castings, like if you wanted to do – not castings. Uh, I don't know what my, my brain is shot today. If you want to do like fiberglass work and you wanted to – or prepreg work with uh, like fibers and stuff, you could uh, – you, you know, because one of the problems of doing uh, – let's say you wanted to make something out of fiberglass – uh, and resin, right? And you want to put it over a mold. Well, the question is, how do you get it to stick nicely to the mold? And you know, a good way to do it is using uh, kind of a vac bag system where you put the entire, you, you put the the impregnated uh, resin, impregnated fiberglass, carbon fiber, Kevlar, whatever in the hell you're using, over your mold. You put it into a vacuum machine, suck it, uh, suck it. I think this might be a good way to do that. If you're, but but that doesn't come up very often in the kitchen, does it? Mm-mm. 
I mean, I used to remember remember that remember the Mokume Agane thing I did back in the day with the. the I used vacuum bag molding for that, um, but um, that was where you know we took different colors of fish, layered them up with uh, transglutaminase, uh, and then par froze them on a mold uh, in like a wavy shape, and then sliced it on uh, on the um, Hobart model. Uh, what was it three thousand or two thousand? meat slicer so that it looked like wood grain fish that was a fun trick haven't done that in a while you know why because they gave me that freaking meat slicer and I let stupidly let, left it at the FCI because it felt it had been there so long that they kind of like oh stupid I should have taken that sucker with probably me probably still take it yeah right yeah okay like that would work uh, anyway uh, so didn't we have something we were going to talk about Sus? we had something we were going to talk about I forget. Anyway, uh, Joshua writes in from Switzerland regarding ice cream. Hi, Dave and Nastasha. Greetings from Switzerland. I'm a big fan of your show, and Stas is a big fan of Switzerland, as it turns out, right? It's true. She loves it a Swiss. She loves it a Swiss. Um, but he doesn't say which Switzerland he's from. Like, Swiss, yeah. like you can... I only like the Italian parts, so. Really? Mm-hmm. Like, but how, how like, cleanly divided are the different parts of Switzerland? Um, like they all hang out in, in like the big cities. They all hang out, right? So you get everyone in the big cities, right? The Italians don't really—they don't move from their area. No, all the German and French do move everywhere. They move everywhere. So like Geneva, there's no Italian people in Geneva. Not a lot. Not that I saw. None. <laughs> Not one. Yeah. Not one Italian speaker. They're like in they're Italians. They don't leave their mother's house. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, we'll talk about that later, I guess. Uh, greetings from Switzerland. I'm a big fan of your show. Lately, I've been obsessed with ice cream. I own an ice cream maker, which is able to cool to negative 35 Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I, I didn't do the calculation. But uh, just for you, for your, your edification, the one I always remember, minus 20 uh, Celsius is minus 4 Fahrenheit. So you're well into the minus range, uh, well, well into the minus range, probably around minus 20 uh, Fahrenheit, something pretty hardcore. Uh Anyway, a couple of days ago, I made a whiskey ice cream on a recipe by Heston Blumenthal, which, by the way, I looked up uh, the Blumenthal recipe so that what, what's about to happen isn't – uh, like whatever is about to happen, the, the results um, that Joshua had that he's not going to be happy with, he's going to describe in a minute, aren't due to a high alcohol content in the whiskey ice cream because what I saw on the internets uh, of Heston Blumenthal, he uh, burns the whiskey first to get rid of a, a lot of the alcohol. So we're not dealing with the softness uh, based on a high alcohol content. Let's just get that up. I don't want anyone thinking that while I'm reading this question because that's not what's going on, right? Were you thinking that, Stas? No. All right. Uh, I love the ice cream maker. Uh, okay, so um, on a recipe with Heston Blumenthal and sage ice cream with egg, sugar, and milk custard. I let the ice cream maker pre-cool to approximately negative 25 Celsius and then poured the ice cream base and let it churn. And here's the thing. Here's what should stick in your head. I let it churn for approximately 30 minutes. After that, I stored the ice cream overnight in a freezer. A taste test the next morning left me unsatisfied. Though, uh, the ice cream was tasty, but it seemed that two large ice crystals had formed because it had an unpleasant mouthfeel and didn't feel smooth. Therefore, my questions. How does the churning time influence the development of ice crystals? Is there a minimum time which you would suggest? Uh, do you see any flaws in my ice cream making, and can you recommend any good literature on ice cream making and the theoretical base? I've read the chapter on ice cream in the book, The Kitchen as Laboratory, but need more. Thank you in advance for your help, Joshua. By the way, the word laboratory brings up – I have – so Travis Huggett, who uh, did the photography on my cocktail book, uh, and, and I – we were in the subway the other day, and 
uh, when I say the other day, I mean yesterday. And we had like seriously the idea that could make us like like the new like Ann Getty slash uh, uh, what's his name Wegman the Weimaraner thing. But since we're never going to do it, I'm going to give this idea out there to somebody. Uh, now, now you're going to think this is really stupid, but the more you think about it, right? The more you think about it, the better it gets. Ready? The, the, this could be the hottest wall and desk calendar of 2015. Labs in labs. We're talking Labrador retrievers in laboratory situations with lab coats on. Labs in labs. Now you're like, that's dumb, right? But look at this. I think it's dumb, even though I came up with the idea. And yet, if I saw that thing on Amazon for 15 bucks, I would own it right now. I would buy it. I would pre-order that sucker right the hell now. Labs in labs. Come on. Somebody do it. Here's what I want. Travis and I, we need some cut. That's all. Like all I want, or like maybe even a mention, a cut. You know, when, when they come with the barrels of money and drop them off at your house for having done this labs and lab calendar, we, like when you're swimming through money, just remember that as you're bailing the boat out so that you don't drown in your own money, just put one of those buckets of money, you know, our way. That's all I'm saying, right? That's all. That's all. I, that's all I need. Labs and labs. Uh, so uh, here's the deal. Uh, ice cream. The longer, okay, ice crystals. Uh, the faster you freeze something, the smaller the ice crystals are, right? And the reason is is because you, with rapid freezing, you get many s- nucleation sites, right? So ice crystals don't – ice crystals lo- prefer to form on other ice crystals. In other words, ice crystals prefer to grow rather than, than to form entirely new ice crystals, right? It's more energetically favored. So the slower something freezes – the larger the ice crystals are. The more rapidly something freezes, the more different nucleation sites you get and the smaller the ice crystals are because they don't have time to grow into larger uh, ice crystals. So there's a direct relationship between the size of the ice crystals that are formed in in a freezing process and the rate of freezing. Now – there are other factors as well, uh, you know, uh, the composition of it, but but for a given – ice cream composition, the crystal size is directly related to uh, the freeze time. Now, here's another thing. Uh, Typically, when you're freezing the ice cream, remember, you're never freezing ice cream until it's a total solid. A good amount of the product uh, uh, of the ice cream is still in a a liquid state, right? And um, and how much of it is liquid is dependent on what the freezing point of the ice cream is, and that's dependent on things like the sugar content, and, and, you know, and the fat content, things like this. Well, not really the fat content, but the sugar content, right? So you know, you're you're looking at there's a lot of liquid water in there. So when you draw out of a machine, you've been churning for 30 minutes. You draw out of the machine. There's still a lot of liquid in it. You already have kind of large seed uh, crystals in there because of the long freezing time, 30 minutes. You then put it in the freezer to harden overnight, and what happens? Those crystals get bigger and bigger overnight as it gets colder and colder. So let's say you have a draw temperature. So forget what the freezing temperature of the of – the, uh, forget what the, the, the minimum possible condenser temperature is in your ice cream uh, maker, right? Forget it because that's not what's important. What's important is what the temperature – how fast – it can put the energy into uh, the ice cream, right? So a commercial ice cream machine, even if it's only, uh, you know, if it's running at a higher temperature than yours, has enough 
has enough ability to chill, enough chilling power that it can freeze the ice cream to its draw temperature of somewhere around, I don't know, 20 Fahrenheit, let's say, or 18, what is it, between 15 and 20, I forget exactly, Fahrenheit, the draw temperature. It can do that in uh, 10 minutes or less, right? So the uh, LB100, which a lot of people use at Taylor's, Depending on the batch size that you put in, you can get down to like a seven-minute batch time, right? Anything below like a seven to ten-minute freeze time, the 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 fact that your crystals are smaller don't doesn't make a damn bit of difference because you can't taste ice crystals that uh, like your tongue can't distinguish the texture of ice crystals that are any smaller than that. So while some people say the texture of liquid nitrogen ice cream is superior to the texture of ice cream that's frozen in a regular machine because it theoretically has smaller uh, you know crystals, that's horse hockey because your tongue can't distinguish anything. But you you can very easily tell the difference between an ice cream that took 30 minutes to freeze and an ice cream that only took seven uh, or eight minutes to freeze. Now, the flip side is, is if you were to take, um, so, so, so what to do, um, you know, one thing is, is look at the power requirements on the, on the back of, uh, your, your machine and you can kind of get an idea of how much, and you can't really, because things get much less efficient as they get colder in terms of how much, uh, they can effectively apply to the ice cream when you're, when you're making it. But almost all machines are underpowered to actually freeze the stuff in, in, a, in a relatively quick fashion. One thing you can do Obviously, start with extremely cold mix. Second thing you can do is use less mix. Now, the problem with using less mix is that a lot of machines, if you underfill the machine, it has too much overrun, i.e. too much air gets whipped into it. So this is something you're going to have to uh, address or uh, or worry about. The third thing is, is if you are going to have a freeze time of, let's say, 20 to 30 minutes, then I would recommend only doing it right before you're about to serve it and not try to harden it. Since since um, machines that have like a 20 to 30 minute freeze time, the texture of the ice cream is usually pretty good right out of the machine. But once hardened, then it all starts going to hell in a handbasket uh, pretty quickly. Um, I don't know. Does that seem to answer that that part of that question? Mm-hmm. As regards references, the best online reference, and it, and it really gets you a long way before you buy any books, is um, go to uh, Google this dairy education series at the university. And I can never know how it's actually pronounced. This town, uh, Guelph. You think it's Guelph or Guelph? Guelph, Guelph, yeah, Canadian. Who knows? But the the professor who wrote that is H. Douglas Goff, and it's a fantastic uh, resource. And I use it as my quick and ready resource, and have for uh, years. Uh, and it's a f- fantastic website with a lot of information. Now, as for books, um, the classic, the classic uh, in, uh, ice cream book is called, uh, you know, makes sense, uh, ice cream. That's what it's called. Uh, and it came out in the 60s. It was released by a co- company called AVI Press. AVI Press in the 60s and 70s put out kind of the best food technology book series. It was so awesome. I used to go to the New York Public Library and read them constantly. And ze- I would literally Xerox them. Uh, you know, this is like you know 20 years ago. I would go Xerox them so I could have them because I couldn't uh, afford them. Now, they've been superseded somewhat and AVI is no longer out of business. But uh, they that, that book was called Ice Cream by Arbor. Arbuckle and Arbuckle was it. Like the in like in, everyone was like Arbuckle ice cream, but they didn't even call it ice cream anymore. They just called it Arbuckle, and everyone knew that they were talking about the ice cream book. No relation to Fatty Arbuckle, the uh, silent film star who may or may not have been wrongly accused of doing that. Whatever, I don't want to get into it. But the um, Arbuckle ice cream. So uh, you familiar with uh, Fatty Arbuckle and silent film star stuff? Yeah, you I think wrote he did a it? On it? Really? Do you I think he did it? Um, 
I need to reread it. I don't remember what I said, what I thought. My last impression was I think he was falsely this accused. This is so off topic. All right. And well, all right, right, right. So, uh, so here's uh, what happened. When it got bought, uh, they did uh, a redo of it, right, with a new author, uh, Robert T. Marshall and W.S. Arbuckle, right? That's the fifth edition from 2000, right? Now, already, they've, they've changed the authorship on it. And then in 2003, they took, uh, they took Arbuckle off the book entirely, and then it was Robert Marshall, Douglas Goff, Right, you know, good guy, and uh, Richard uh, Hartel, who's not at Guelph like Goff is. He's at Madtown. He's the ice cream scientist at, at uh, University of Wisconsin Mad- in Madison. Uh, anyways, so then Arbuckle came off. I got really pissed. I don't really like it when something's like a standard like that, and then they rewrite it, and then they just like they take the original author off. They should have called it Arbuckle's Ice Cream with the new authors on it, right? Uh, and uh, and then now they released it uh, in 2013. They just released it as Ice Cream. By H. Douglas Goff and uh, Richard Hartel. So whatever. I don't appreciate the loss of the lineage of like such a, a well-known book, but there you have it. That's the ice cream book to get. The other one is called uh, – by C. Clark. It's called The Science of Ice Cream uh, and it's uh, 2004 from the Royal Society of Chemistry. A uh, little bit of it is available on Google Books and on Amazon and so I looked through it and it also looks uh, pretty good. The cover – there's two covers I saw. A cover looked like crap. It was like scooped out colored lard. Like why do people do that when they're shooting ice cream? Just shoot real ice cream and shoot it fast, you know? Do you like lard-looking ice cream for no. fake? You hate that, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know it – like, you know, you're selling your science of ice cream and then you have – the other one was just a series of tubes. It's a series of tubes. I didn't really – I didn't get that. But I like the tube cover better. Anyway, but that's another alternative. All right. So uh, that's good on that. On, on that. Yeah. yeah, four minutes. Four minutes? Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, well, well, listen. Listen. <laughs> So Sam wrote in about uh, homemade pasta sheets for uh, lasagna, and I have my thoughts on it. But I'm going to try to wait. Uh, we 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 were going to try to get uh, Mark Ladner on because you know he makes he they make the pasta for that billion layer lasagna, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a billion layers. How many layers is it? Hundred. Hundred. So I wanted to get uh, kind of his feelings um, on it, uh, especially on like whole egg versus egg yolk and various things in pasta, and also his feelings on gluten free pasta and bite and stuff like that because he knows a lot. So maybe we can get him next week. Mm-hmm. So uh, so Sam, I'm going to put off your question on that uh, till next week, uh, and let's go up to. Oh, and I, you know, by the way, I'm sorry, uh, Twitter folks. Uh, it doesn't look like I'm going to get a chance to any Twitter questions, but I'm going to tabulate them all. I'll try to answer some of them on Twitter, and then once I can't answer on Twitter, I'll, I'll postpone until next week. Jeff Mays writes in, uh, just curious if you or Dave were able to figure out how best to cook candle nuts so that they're safe to eat. I have a pressure cooker and a circulator and not sure if there's a foolproof way to par cook so I can keep them in the house without having to worry about them being poisonous. I called uh, in a while ago about the question but I haven't heard the answer yet. Okay. I've only been able to find the stupid stuff on – not stupid, whatever, but the stuff on Wikipedia that say that it contains saponin and forball. And everyone just quotes that as a block text out of that. Uh, but I haven't found the references on uh, relative heat stability, just that they're – just that it's inactivated by by cooking, not necessarily in a pressure cooker. Typically, these guys are roasting it. So uh, you brought it back to my attention. I haven't answered it. I'm going to – come back and do some more research on it but you have a second question which i can hit a little harder uh for low temperature fried chicken if you pre-cook at 64 degrees white meat uh at, for 45 minutes the chicken chill then refrigerate what is the best fry temperature to ensure that i don't overcook the chicken but still get a delicious crispy crust i brine using the ad hoc you know Ted keller's book recipe then low temp cook chill then refrigerate then remove and fry i'm using flour buttermilk uh, uh i'm using a flour buttermilk flour procedure for frying which is what i use but i you know put egg in the buttermilk 
Anyway, when I last did this at 365, uh, 360 degrees in grapeseed oil, that's Fahrenheit, uh, the white meat was not as juicy as when I didn't pre-cook low temp and did all the frying at 325. Or is there a different temp I should use for low temperature? I really want to do the chicken quickly so that I can have it fresh out of the fryer for guests shortly after they arrive and don't have to spend a dinner party in front of a fry station. Thanks again for the show every week. Jeff Mays. Okay, here's a couple of questions for you, or a couple of, of issues. So um, typically... Uh, what, what may be going on is that you're cooking it brined uh, and then allowing it to uh, to refrigerate and sit. And I'm wondering if it's firming up a little bit the way that most salted meats really firm up when they're being cooked and whether or not when you say it's not as juicy, is it there, – there, there's a couple of things it could be. Is it that it's not as juicy but it's still clearly not overcooked? Does it taste firmer, i.e. more cured? In which case, if you're going to pre-cook it a long time before, maybe omit the brining or do a, uh, a lighter brine so it doesn't taste as, as firm or cured. That's – I'm not sure. I'd have to test it. I don't have this problem. I'll tell you why. I don't refrigerate my, uh, my chicken. When I'm doing low-temp chicken, I do it uh, – fairly soon before the meat is going to be served. I remove it from the Ziplocs uh, where it's brine. I cook it in the brine, frankly, and then I pull it out and I pull it out hot. And the reason I pull it out hot is so that the skin flashes off and gets tacky so that I get good adhesion of my batter, right? Now, I know there's a whole pies and thighs, Roberta's uh, theory of you know not drying the chicken at all before you batter it, but whatever. I don't do that. And so – and then I fry it. Uh, in the limit of food safety time, so it ne- I never chill it down, and I never ref- and I fry it at 360, right? So, you know, that's kind of how I do it. And what my feeling is, is that you're probably uh, you're probably getting a, 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 a lack of the feeling you're getting out of a fresh cooked chicken because it was cooked, brined, and cooked. Uh, and allowed to sit in the salt, uh, you know, in its own salt for as long. And it's pulling on that kind of texture, but I'm not sure. I have to maybe I could put a call into a couple of people and um, see what I'm working on, or maybe do a side by side test. But I would try to do it fresh. Uh, I.e., you could still do it so your dinner guests don't get hosed, right? You could do it a couple hours before they show up, but try doing it kind of a la minute because 360 is what you should uh, do. I wouldn't do it from cold, though. By the way. Uh, that might be another problem you're having. You might be trying to warm up the center of the chicken by doing a 360-degree cook. If you try to do that, you're going to overcook the hell out of the outside of the chicken and, and you'll also burn the, burn the crust. The optimum thing is to have the chicken be you know, somewhere you know, like above room temperature, at or above room temperature, so that when you fry it, you're literally just focused on the crust and everything else is secondary. Here's, here's something you might want to do to uh, – to, to try that as, as a problem is uh, pull your stuff. If you're going to leave it in the bag and refrigerate it, try this. Pull it out of the fridge if, if it's not the salt problem. Pull it out of the fridge and circuit for like you know, 25 minutes at like uh, 50 Celsius and then uh, pull it out hot. Uh, let it flash off for a little bit or even 55 Celsius, let, let it heat up, flash it off for a couple of minutes, then bread it, then fry it, and see whether that solves your problem. Maybe you're just going from too cold and spending too long in the fryer. Anyway, those are my thoughts. We got Peter Kim, who shows up late, or as last week, never. Whoa! From the Actually, what's interesting is he actually was here in Roberta's, but he was at the bar. But that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. Peter Kim, what do you got for us? Yo, the man. President, What's up? Uh, what are you, president, director? Emperor. Emperor Galactic of the Museum of Galactic Emperor of the Museum of Food and Drink? Exactly. Nice. All right, what do you got for us? 
Well, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Golden Cadillac, uh, to Don Lee, the Asian man with the best hair in New York City. Well, and you know, there's a T-shirt of all the various incarnations of uh, Don Lee's hair, and I think his hair deserves the actual legal technical term of incarnation. I believe it has agency. Absolutely, absolutely, it has a soul. Yeah, and uh, I've got the calendar of his hair, and uh, also to uh, cocktail superstar John Darragon. The two of them uh, put together a great event for MoFad uh, a couple weeks ago at Golden Cadillac, and uh, yeah, good turnout. Dave, you were there in a mask and a cape. Blue, shooting, uh, Blue Diamond, yeah. Yeah, syringes of jello shots into people's mouths. Don Lee's jello shots, by the way. Exactly. They were Don Lee's jello shots. I take no credit. Yeah. I take no blame. Exactly. I was merely the barback, the server, the and, waitron. Yeah, Patrick was there too, Patrick Martins. And, uh, what was his quote? Give me, give, give me Patrick Martins' quote as he self-injected wanna... himself with, with uh, pina colada. What was the quote? Give it to me. I blocked it from my oh, brain. Oh, come on. Don't... Wait, Dave, I don't, I, I don't remember anything. What was it? No, he, it's like calling him out. It's not calling him out. It was awesome. It's not calling him out. <laughs> hey, how about those flat pizzas that they've got at Subway? Uh, uh, don't no, get me don't started. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. We don't have time for to get me time. started. All I have a question about time. MSG, though. Nope. Oh, jeez. Nope. You know, nope. Peter, nope. Peter, nope. so why don't you, instead, why don't you spend the, the, in, in, you know, the few minutes we have left, and that reminded me, now I have Zero cult of personality yeah. going through my head. Zero but uh, for those of you that remember Living Color, uh, imp- you know, the cult of personality song. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Good song. Anyway, so what do we got going to the museum soon? Well, actually, so on the Golden Cadillac thing, we're going to make that a monthly thing. And uh, so keep an eye out for that. And then we've got a debate coming up on GMOs on, I think, Sunday, April 27th at the Food Book Fair. And we've got a big MoFed fundraiser coming up in May. And the Stasi and I are putting it together. It's going to be amazing. We've got some great chefs lined up for that. Uh, May 7 is our tentative date, but we'll be sending out a state of date as soon as we get the details hammered are, out. Are we doing any partic- – what particular aspect of GMOs are we going to tackle? Man, I mean, I think one of the first questions is, is just going to be about defining GMOs and what those are and how they differ from conventionally grown crops, if at all. Why is that really contentious? The actual definition? Yeah, it is. The definition is contentious? Yeah. All right. Well, I will. Uh, am I going to moderate this one? Uh, yeah, I, we'll have you moderate it. Why is the definition? Oh, I mean, how you define right, it legally in terms of, of hey, hey, Stas. Stas is worried because she's got something else to do. No. Like, no, it's true. It's fine. I won't discuss what it is. But the, the point is, is that the, 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 I guess the definition of what you actually count as a GMO modified food is quite important as it relates to whether or not you can sell it in Whole Foods in five years when they come in. Right? Is that what you mean? No one really, no one really, no one really argues about what what the process of using genetic modification is. It's just whether or not a particular food stuff is labeled as GMO free or not, right? That's what's contentious. That's true, yeah, and also for regulation purposes too. Yeah. Right, sure, sure. All right. So uh, yes, a giant thanks uh, to the Golden Cadillac, uh, John Darragon, Don Lee, Greg Bohm, all those uh, guys. They did a, uh, a real solid service with that. Uh, and uh, maybe we should have uh, you know occasionally we should have you come in and just give us a MoFed update. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. All right. And I'll stand you up. Yeah, nice. All right. Uh, Well, that was it. Cooking Issues. Labs and labs. Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.